Section twenty four of White Knights and Other Stories by Fyodor Dostoevsky. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Little Hero by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Translated from the Russian by Constance Garnett. Part one. At that time I was nearly eleven. I had been sent in July to spend the holiday in a village near Moscow with a relation of mine called T, whose house was full of guests, fifty or perhaps more, I don't remember, I didn't count. The house was full of noise and gaiety. It seemed as though it were a continual holiday, which would never end. It seemed as though our host had taken a vow to squander all his vast fortune as rapidly as possible and he did indeed succeed not long ago in justifying this surmise, that is, in making a clean sweep of it all to the last stick. Fresh visitors used to drive up every minute. Moscow was close by, in sight, so that those who drove away only made room for others, and the everlasting holiday went on its course. Festivities succeeded one another, and there was no end in sight to the entertainments. There were riding parties about the environs, excursions to the forest or the river, picnics, dinners in the open air, suppers on the great terrace of the house, bordered with three rows of gorgeous flowers that flooded with their fragrance the fresh night air, and illuminated the brilliant lights, which made our ladies, who were almost every one of them pretty at all times, seem still more charming. With their faces excited by the impressions of the day, with their sparkling eyes, with their interchange of sprightly conversation, their peals of ringing laughter, dancing, music, singing. If the sky were overcast, tableaux vivants, charades, proverbs were arranged, private theatricals were got up, there were good talkers, storytellers, wits. Certain persons were prominent in the foreground. Of course, backbiting and slander ran their course, as without them the world could not get on, and millions of persons would perish of boredom, like flies. But as I was at that time eleven, I was absorbed by very different interests, and either failed to observe these people, or, if I noticed anything, did not see at all. It was only afterwards that some things came back to my mind. My childish eyes could only see the brilliant side of the picture, and the general animation, splendor, and bustle, all that seen and heard for the first time, made such an impression upon me that for the first few days I was completely bewildered and my little head was in a whirl. I keep speaking of my age, and of course I was a child, nothing more than a child. Many of these lovely ladies petted me without dreaming of considering my age. But strange to say, a sensation which I did not myself understand already had possession of me. Something was already whispering in my heart, of which till then it had had no knowledge, no conception, and for some reason it began all at once to burn and throb, and often my face glowed with a sudden flush. At times I felt as it were abashed and even resentful of the various privileges of my childish years. At other times a sort of wonder overwhelmed me, and I would go off into some corner where I could sit unseen, as though to take breath and remember something, something which it seemed to me I had remembered perfectly till then, and now had suddenly forgotten, something without which I could not show myself anywhere, 
and could not exist at all. At last it seemed to me as though I were hiding something from everyone, but nothing would have induced me to speak of it to anyone, because, small boy that I was, I was ready to weep with shame. Soon, in the midst of the vortex around me, I was conscious of a certain loneliness. There were other children, but all were either much older or younger than I. Besides, I was in no mood for them. Of course, nothing would have happened to me if I had not been in an exceptional position. In the eyes of those charming ladies, I was still the little unformed creature whom they at once liked to pet, and with whom they could play as though he were a little doll. One of them particularly, a fascinating fair woman, with very thick, luxuriant hair, such as I had never seen before, and probably shall never see again, seemed to have taken a vow never to leave me in peace. I was confused, while she was amused by the laughter which she continually provoked from all around us by her wild, giddy pranks with me and this apparently gave her immense enjoyment. At school, among her schoolfellows, she was probably nicknamed the Tease. She was wonderfully good-looking, and there was something in her beauty which drew one's eyes from the first moment. And certainly she had nothing in common with the ordinary modest little fair girls, white as down, and soft as white mice, or pastor's daughters. She was not very tall, and was rather plump, but had soft, delicate, exquisitely cut features. There was something quick as lightning in her face, and indeed she was like fire all over, light, swift, alive. Her big open eyes seemed to flash sparks. They glittered like diamonds, and I would never exchange such blue sparkling eyes for any black ones, were they blacker than any Andalusian orb. And, indeed, my blonde was fully a match for the famous brunette whose praises were sung by a great and well-known poet, who, in a superb poem, vowed by all Castile that he was ready to break his bones, to be permitted only to touch the mantle of his divinity with the tip of his finger. Add to that that my charmer was the merriest in the world, the wildest giggler, playful as a child, although she had been married for the last five years. There was a continual laugh upon her lips, fresh as the morning rose, that, with the first ray of sunshine, opens its fragrant crimson bud, with the cool dewdrops still hanging heavy upon it. I remember that the day after my arrival, private theatricals were being got up. The drawing-room was, as they say, packed to overflowing. There was not a seat empty, and, as I was somehow late, I had to enjoy the performance standing. But the amusing play attracted me to move forwarder and forwarder, and unconsciously I made my way to the first row, where I stood at last, leaning my elbows on the back of an armchair in which a lady was sitting. It was my blonde divinity, but we had not yet made acquaintance, and I gazed, as it happened, at her marvelous, fascinating shoulders, plump and white as milk, though it did not matter to me in the least whether I stared at a woman's exquisite shoulders or at the cap with flaming ribbons that covered the gray locks of a venerable lady in the front row. Near my blonde divinity sat a spinster lady not in her first youth, one of those who, as I chanced to observe later, always take refuge in the immediate neighborhood of young and pretty women, selecting such as are not fond of cold-shouldering young men. But that is not the point. Only this lady noted my fixed gaze, bent down to her neighbor, 
and with a simper whispered something in her ear the blonde lady turned at once and i remember that her glowing eyes so flashed upon me in the half-dark that not prepared to meet them i started as though i were scalded the beauty smiled do you like what they are acting she asked looking into my face with a shy and mocking expression yes i answered still gazing at her with a sort of wonder that evidently pleased her but why are you standing you'll get tired can't you find a seat that's just it i can't i answered more occupied with my grievance than with the beauty's sparkling eyes and rejoicing in earnest at having found a kind heart to whom i could confide my troubles i have looked everywhere but all the chairs are taken i added as though complaining to her that all the chairs were taken come here she said briskly quick to act on every decision and indeed on every mad idea that flashed on her giddy brain come here and sit on my knee on your knee i repeated taken aback i have mentioned already that i had begun to resent the privileges of childhood and to be ashamed of them in earnest this lady as though in derision had gone ever so much further than the others moreover i had always been a shy and bashful boy and of late had begun to be particularly shy with women why yes on my knee don't you want to sit on my knee she persisted beginning to laugh more and more so that at last she was simply giggling goodness knows at what perhaps at her freak or perhaps at my confusion but that was just what she wanted i flushed and in my confusion looked round trying to find where to escape but seeing my intention she managed to catch hold of my hand to prevent me from going away and pulling it towards her suddenly quite unexpectedly to my intense astonishment squeezed it in her mischievous warm fingers and began to pinch my fingers till they hurt so much that i had to do my very utmost not to cry out and in my effort to control myself made the most absurd grimaces i was besides moved to the greatest amazement perplexity and even horror at the discovery that there were ladies so absurd and spiteful as to talk nonsense to boys and even pinch their fingers for no earthly reason and before everybody probably my unhappy face reflected my bewilderment for the mischievous creature laughed in my face as though she were crazy and meantime she was pinching my fingers more and more vigorously she was highly delighted in playing such a mischievous prank and completely mystifying and embarrassing a poor boy my position was desperate in the first place i was hot with shame because almost every one near had turned round to look at us some in wonder others with laughter grasping at once that the beauty was up to some mischief i dreadfully wanted to scream too for she was wringing my fingers with positive fury just because i didn't scream while i like a spartan made up my mind to endure the agony afraid by crying out of causing a general fuss which was more than i could face in utter despair i began at last struggling with her trying with all my might to pull away my hand but my persecutor was much stronger than i was at last i could bear it no longer and uttered a shriek that was all she was waiting for instantly she let me go and turned away as though nothing had happened as though it was not she who had played the trick but someone else exactly like some schoolboy 
who as soon as the master's back is turned plays some trick on someone near him pinches some small weak boy gives him a flip a kick or a nudge with his elbows and instantly turns again buries himself in his book and begins repeating his lesson and so makes a fool of the infuriated teacher who flies down like a hawk at the noise but luckily for me the general attention was distracted at the moment by the masterly acting of our host who was playing the chief part in the performance some comedy of scribes everyone began to applaud under cover of the noise i stole away and hurried to the furthest end of the room from which concealed behind a column i looked with horror towards the place where the treacherous beauty was sitting she was still laughing holding her handkerchief to her lips and for a long time she was continually turning round looking for me in every direction probably regretting that our silly tussle was so soon over and hatching some other trick to play on me that was the beginning of our acquaintance and from that evening she would never let me alone she persecuted me without consideration or conscience she became my tyrant and tormentor the whole absurdity of her jokes with me lay in the fact that she pretended to be head over ears in love with me and teased me before everyone of course for a wild creature as i was all this was so tiresome and vexatious that it almost reduced me to tears and i was sometimes put in such a difficult position that i was on the point of fighting with my treacherous admirer my naive confusion my desperate distress seemed to egg her on to persecute me more she knew no mercy while i did not know how to get away from her the laughter which always accompanied us and which she knew so well how to excite roused her to fresh pranks but at last people began to think that she went a little too far in her jests and indeed as i remember now she did take outrageous liberties with a child such as i was but that was her character she was a spoilt child in every respect i heard afterwards that her husband a very short very fat and very red-faced man very rich and apparently very much occupied with business spoilt her more than anyone always busy and flying round he could not stay two hours in one place every day he drove into moscow sometimes twice in the day and always as he declared himself on business it would be hard to find a livelier and more good-natured face than his facetious but always well-bred countenance he not only loved his wife to the point of weakness softness he simply worshipped her like an idol he did not restrain her in anything she had masses of friends male and female in the first place almost everybody liked her and secondly the feather-headed creature was not herself over-particular in the choice of her friends though there was a much more serious foundation to her character than might be supposed from what i have just said about her but of all her friends she liked best of all one young lady a distant relation who was also of our party now there existed between them a tender and subtle affection one of those attachments which sometimes spring up at the meeting of two dispositions often the very opposite of each other of which one is deeper purer and more austere while the other with lofty humility and generous self-criticism lovingly gives way to the other conscious of the friend's superiority and cherishing the friendship as a happiness then begins that tender and noble subtlety 
in the relations of such characters love and infinite indulgence on the one side on the other love and respect a respect approaching awe approaching anxiety as to the impression made on the friend so highly prized and an eager jealous desire to get closer and closer to that friend's heart in every step in life these two friends were of the same age but there was an immense difference between them in everything in looks to begin with madame m was also very handsome but there was something special in her beauty that strikingly distinguished her from the crowd of pretty women there was something in her face that at once drew the affection of all to her or rather which aroused a generous and lofty feeling of kindliness in every one who met her there are such happy faces at her side every one grew as it were better freer more cordial and yet her big mournful eyes full of fire and vigor had a timid and anxious look as though every minute dreading something antagonistic and menacing and this strange timidity at times cast so mournful a shade over her mild gentle features which recalled the serene faces of italian madonnas that looking at her one soon became oneself sad as though for some trouble of one's own the pale thin face in which through the irreproachable beauty of the pure regular lines and the mournful severity of some mute hidden grief there often flitted the clear looks of early childhood telling of trustful years and perhaps simple-hearted happiness in the recent past the gentle but diffident hesitating smile all aroused such unaccountable sympathy for her that every heart was unconsciously stirred with a sweet and warm anxiety that powerfully interceded on her behalf even at a distance and made even strangers feel akin to her but the lovely creature seemed silent and reserved though no one could have been more attentive and loving if any one needed sympathy there are women who are like sisters of mercy in life nothing can be hidden from them nothing at least that is a sore or wound of the heart any one who is suffering may go boldly and hopefully to them without fear of being a burden for few men know the infinite patience of love compassion and forgiveness that may be found in some women's hearts perfect treasures of sympathy consolation and hope are laid up in these pure hearts so often full of suffering of their own for a heart which loves much grieves much though their wounds are carefully hidden from the curious eye for deep sadness is most often mute and concealed they are not dismayed by the depth of the wound nor by its foulness and its stench any one who comes to them is deserving of help they are as it were born for heroism madame m was tall supple and graceful but rather thin all her movements seemed somehow irregular at times slow smooth and even dignified at times childishly hasty and yet at the same time there was a sort of timid humility in her gestures something tremulous and defenceless though it neither desired nor asked for protection i have mentioned already that the outrageous teasing of the treacherous fair lady abashed me flabbergasted me and wounded me to the quick but there was for that another secret strange and foolish reason which i concealed at which i shuddered as at a skeleton 
at the very thought of it brooding utterly alone and overwhelmed in some dark mysterious corner to which the inquisitorial mocking eye of the blue-eyed rogue could not penetrate i almost gasped with confusion shame and fear in short i was in love that perhaps is nonsense that could hardly have been but why was it of all the faces surrounding me only her face caught my attention why was it that it was only she whom i cared to follow with my eyes though i certainly had no inclination in those days to watch ladies and seek their acquaintance this happened most frequently on the evenings when we were all kept indoors by bad weather and when lonely hiding in some corner of the big drawing-room i stared about me aimlessly unable to find anything to do for except my teasing ladies few people ever addressed me and i was insufferably bored on such evenings then i stared at the people round me listened to the conversation of which i often did not understand one word and at that time the mild eyes the gentle smile and lovely face of madame m for she was the object of my passion for some reason caught my fascinated attention and the strange vague but unutterably sweet impression remained with me often for hours together i could not tear myself away from her i studied every gesture every movement she made listened to every vibration of her rich silvery but rather muffled voice but strange to say as the result of all my observations i felt mixed with a sweet and timid impression a feeling of intense curiosity it seemed as though i were on the verge of some mystery nothing distressed me so much as being mocked at in the presence of madame m this mockery and humorous persecution as i thought humiliated me and when there was a general burst of laughter at my expense in which madame m sometimes could not help joining in despair beside myself with misery i used to tear myself from my tormentor and run away upstairs where i remained in solitude the rest of the day not daring to show my face in the drawing-room i did not yet however understand my shame nor my agitation the whole process went on in me unconsciously i had hardly said two words to madame m and indeed i should not have dared to but one evening after an unbearable day i turned back from an expedition with the rest of the company i was horribly tired and made my way home across the garden on a seat in a secluded avenue i saw madame m she was sitting quite alone as though she had purposely chosen this solitary spot her head was drooping and she was mechanically twisting her handkerchief she was so lost in thought that she did not hear me till i reached her noticing me she got up quickly from her seat turned round and i saw her hurriedly wipe her eyes with her handkerchief she was crying drying her eyes she smiled to me and walked back with me to the house i don't remember what we talked about but she frequently sent me off on one pretext or another to pick a flower or to see who was riding in the next avenue and when i walked away from her she at once put her handkerchief to her eyes again and wiped away rebellious tears which would persist in rising again and again from her heart and dropping from her poor eyes i realized that i was very much in her way when she sent me off so often and indeed she saw herself that i noticed it all but yet could not control herself 
and that made my heart ache more and more for her. I raged at myself at that moment, and was almost in despair, cursed myself for my awkwardness and lack of resource, and at the same time did not know how to leave her tactfully, without betraying that I had noticed her distress, but walked beside her in mournful bewilderment, almost in alarm, utterly at a loss, and unable to find a single word to keep up our scanty conversation. This meeting made such an impression on me that I stealthily watched Madame M. the whole evening with eager curiosity, and never took my eyes off her. But it happened that she twice caught me unawares watching her, and on the second occasion, noticing me, she gave me a smile. It was the only time she smiled that evening. The look of sadness had not left her face, which was now very pale. She spent the whole evening talking to an ill-natured and quarrelsome old lady, whom nobody liked, owing to her spying and backbiting habits, but of whom everyone was afraid, and consequently everyone felt obliged to be polite to her. At ten o'clock, Madame M.'s husband arrived. Till that moment I watched her very attentively, never taking my eyes off her mournful face. Now at the unexpected entrance of her husband, I saw her start and her pale face turned suddenly as white as a handkerchief. It was so noticeable that other people observed it. I overheard a fragmentary conversation, from which I guessed that Madame M. was not quite happy. They said her husband was as jealous as an Arab, not from love, but from vanity. He was before all things a European, a modern man, who sampled the newest ideas and prided himself upon them. In appearance he was a tall, dark-haired, particularly thick-set man, with European whiskers, with a self-satisfied red face, with teeth white as sugar, and with an irreproachably gentlemanly deportment. He was called a clever man. Such is the name given in certain circles to a peculiar species of mankind, which grows fat at other people's expense, which does absolutely nothing, and has no desire to do anything and whose heart has turned into a lump of fat from everlasting slothfulness and idleness. You continually hear from such men that there is nothing they can do, owing to certain very complicated and hostile circumstances, which thwart their genius, and that it was sad to see the waste of their talents. This is a fine phrase of theirs, their mot de audre, their watchword, a phrase which those well-fed, fat friends of ours bring out at every minute, so that it has long ago bored us as an errant tartuffism, an empty form of words. Some, however, of these amusing creatures, who cannot succeed in finding anything to do, though indeed they never seek it, try to make everyone believe that they have not a lump of fat for a heart, but on the contrary something very deep, though what precisely the greatest surgeon would hardly venture to decide from civility, of course. These gentlemen make their way in the world through the fact that all their instincts are bent in the direction of coarse sneering, short-sighted censure, and immense conceit. Since they have nothing else to do but note and emphasize the mistakes and weaknesses of others, and as they have precisely as much good feeling as an oyster, it is not difficult for them with such powers of self-preservation to get on with people fairly successfully. They pride themselves extremely upon that. They are, for instance, 
as good as persuaded that almost the whole world owes them something that it is theirs like an oyster which they keep in reserve that all are fools except themselves that every one is like an orange or a sponge which they will squeeze as soon as they want the juice that they are the masters everywhere and that all this acceptable state of affairs is solely due to the fact that they are people of so much intellect and character in their measureless conceit they do not admit any defects in themselves they are like that species of practical rogues innate tartus and falstaffs who are such thorough rogues that at last they have come to believe that that is as it should be that is that they should spend their lives in knavishness they have so often assured every one that they are honest men that they have come to believe that they are honest men and that their roguery is honesty they are never capable of inner judgment before their conscience of generous self-criticism for some things they are too fat their own priceless personality their ball and moloch their magnificent ego is always in the foreground everywhere all nature the whole world for them is no more than a splendid mirror created for the little god to admire himself continually in it and to see no one and nothing behind himself so it is not strange that he sees everything in the world in such a hideous light he has a phrase in readiness for everything and the acme of ingenuity on his part the most fashionable phrase it is just these people indeed who help to make the fashion proclaiming at every crossroad an idea in which they scent success a fine nose is just what they have for sniffing a fashionable phrase and making it their own before other people get hold of it so that it seems to have originated with them they have a particular store of phrases for proclaiming their profound sympathy for humanity for defining what is the most correct and rational form of philanthropy and continually attacking romanticism in other words everything fine and true each atom of which is more precious than all their mollusk tribe but they are too coarse to recognize the truth in an indirect roundabout and unfinished form and they reject everything that is immature still fermenting and unstable the well-nourished man has spent all his life in merrymaking with everything provided has done nothing himself and does not know how hard every sort of work is and so woe betide you if you jar upon his fat feelings by any sort of roughness he'll never forgive you for that he will always remember it and will gladly avenge it the long and short of it is that my hero is neither more nor less than a gigantic incredibly swollen bag full of sentences fashionable phrases and labels of all sorts and kinds monsieur m however had a specialty and was a very remarkable man he was a wit good talker and storyteller and there was always a circle round him in every drawing-room that evening he was particularly successful in making an impression he took possession of the conversation he was in his best form gay pleased at something and he compelled the attention of all but madame m looked all the time as though she were ill her face was so sad that i fancied every minute the tears would begin quivering on her long eyelashes all this as i have said impressed me extremely and made me wonder 
I went away with a feeling of strange curiosity, and dreamed all night of Monsieur M., though till then I had rarely had dreams. End of Part 1